Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We have a four-part series for you, and today is the first window And as we covered just not long ago, the actual triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, we're actually going to pick up that story in the garden. We're going to look out through the garden window. And I would draw your attention to the reasoning for this particular series. Whenever you look through a window, you are forced to take a smaller piece of the world. Amen? For those of you that have flown, you know that's really true when you're looking out one of those little round windows on an airplane. You can only see so much of the earth below. You're flying over a large piece of maybe the center of the United States, and you'll you'll look out, and all you can see is maybe a farm field. Whenever you look through a window, you are forced to focus. And today, we're going to focus on the garden And so we'll actually continue our journey through Luke's gospel in chapter 22. We'll pick up in verse 39, if you would turn there. And the first window to Easter, the window of the garden. Would you join me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that in this garden that brought you, Jesus, so much agony, we find the answer to why you came in the first place. The reason for the triumphal entry was not so much that you would be declared king, as important as that was, but you came to give your life a ransom for many. Lord, you came to agonize over us, ultimately to give your life in our place. And so we invite you, Lord, to speak to us as your people, Strengthen us to receive your word this morning. Encourage us, Lord, in our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Verse 39, looking at the agony of the garden. And coming out, he leaves the disciples. He celebrated the last Passover. He leaves the upper room less than a mile away on the other side of the Temple Mount. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, and I want you to underline that, the reason it's called the place is it was the place Jesus normally went. If he wanted to spend some time with God the Father, This is the place that he went. Now, I can't tell you where that is for you, but I think all of us need the place. The place where you can turn off the world, turn off certainly the television, turn off life even to some degree, turn off all the external noises, the buzz of the city, the things of life, the place where you meet with the Father. 
where you stop to pray. And he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This was going to be the roughest night of the disciples' life, of Jesus' life. By the middle of the following day, Jesus will be dead. Notice what Jesus chooses to do in the face of his greatest adversity. Pray. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Exhausted from the battle. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The agony of the garden. Interesting word that is used here, translated from the Greek word agonizo. It means to struggle with something to the point of and including death. It was used in the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games. It was used to contend with adversaries to fight. It was used when difficulties became so great that they were overwhelming. This word was only used for the most severe of circumstances. Agonizo. Jesus is in agony for a whole bunch of reasons. And on the list is you. On the list is Jesus coming to Jerusalem to give his life in your place. As we work through this passage, you're going to see what it cost Jesus to meet there in Gethsemane. The word simply means the press or the pressing. In this case, it was to press olives. But what was about to happen was the pressing of the Son of God to the point of death. There is almost an indication here in this text that Jesus nearly died from the mere thought of taking your sin. That it was physically sufficient and mentally sufficient, emotionally sufficient, in and of itself, the mere thought 
of being abandoned by his father on the cross, Jesus actually says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup. Which cup? The cup that he had just shared with the disciples. The cup of redemption. The cup of his own blood. The cup of the new covenant. The cup of the price paid for my sin and yours. The full cup. And so he would be pressed to the point of death by the thought of separation. As Jesus met, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you travel with us, it's one of our stops when we tour Israel. As you go to this garden, which is very near the Brook Kidron, it's just a 200 feet away. And so the water would have been diverted from uphill through a trough and to water this olive grove. And in fact, all of the olive groves on the Mount of Olives, uh, if they were to be watered, if there was to be a garden. So it indicates that there weren't just trees, but there were also other things, perhaps food crops, certainly flowers. But in this place of great beauty, which now has a church called the Church of Agony or the Church of All Nations, this place where Jesus kneels to pray. And in fact, the trees that are there is believed that the rootstock may well be the rootstock of the original olive trees from when Jesus was in this garden. And if you look at the trees, you can see they're massive trunks. Two of them are more than 30 feet in diameter. And before you think, well, a tree can't live that long. Oh, yes, they can. Because these particular trees propagate by sending shoots out. And if you have one olive tree, you might end up with two and then three or four or then 10 or 20 or 100. In fact, here in California, we have the world's oldest trees. Everybody says, oh, it must be the redwoods. No, it's not. It's actually the bristlecone pines. If you travel up the Owens Valley and you go to a little town called Big Pine, head east for a little bit, you'll come to the Bristlecone Pine Sanctuary, and there's the Methuselah tree, 4,780 years old. So it is possible these trees were around when Jesus was there, but that's not the important part. The important part is the olive press that's in this garden. Jesus would be pressed. Notice he withdraws a stone's throw away. As we look through the garden window, we can see the divine guidance of the Lord. Jesus speaks to his Father, two persons of the Trinity, in communication one with another, not one person talking to himself, but God the Son talking to God the Father. And I would remind you that if it was that important that in the face of the darkest time in his life, Jesus sought his father. How much more important do you think it is that you seek out your father in the important things of your life? In fact, in all things in your life. Jesus is again showing us the importance of prayer. 
for Jesus to fight such a foe as he would face. Because there is going to be a temptation, and you're going to see it in the lives of the disciples. And it's so important at this moment that we remember Jesus was fully God and fully man. The emotions he was undertaking, the thoughts he was thinking, while being God, they were purified by the fact that he was God. He was still a human being. And the very thought of what was about to happen to him was sufficient to press him. And here he withdraws a stone's throw from the disciples. It's interesting because a stone's throw was the distance of death as far as the Jewish people were concerned. If someone was to be stoned to death, they were taken a stone's throw away. And so here Jesus voluntarily moves the distance it would take for someone to be stoned to death away from the disciples. It's as if he's saying to them, this is something only I can do. And I'm going to go over here while my father and I speak. Jesus was about to have something happen to him that is really, for me, almost unthinkable. He would literally be made sin. The pure, spotless Lamb of God would be made sin for us. The very thing that the Apostle Paul declares there in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus is actually going to have happened to him. He would be made sin so we could become the righteousness of God. The chastisement that Isaiah was speaking about that would be for our peace would be put upon him. The full and unrelenting wrath of God against my sin was going to be placed on Jesus. Do you understand why he might sweat great drops of blood at that moment? Now, I don't know how good you are at recalling your entire life and everything in it that was ever contrary to God's character, nature, and word. And then also add in the things that you might still yet do future. Think about the totality of mankind and what that might represent. So when scripture says he became sin for us, he became all of our sin. Every sin. The sinless lamb who had never sinned himself became for you what you actually already were. God the Father looks at his own son and allows the weight of our sin to be placed on his own son. Church, it's mind-boggling to me. The dread the fear. Sometimes when I think about my own sin, maybe you do this, I don't know. 
But when I think about what my sin cost Jesus, when I think about the things that I have said and done in my lifetime, and I think about what that did to Jesus, that in and of itself is overwhelming to me at times. Like, Lord. That's the reason the Apostle Paul said, what then, should we go on sinning that grace might abound? Heaven forbid. Because every sin is an additional stripe. Every sin is an additional weight. Everything that we do is something Christ has to pay for. Father, if there's any possible way. And Jesus says, nevertheless, this is actually why I came. Your will be done. Through this same garden window, we can also see God's grace. And notice verse 43 And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Man, think about it. Jesus needed the strength of an angel. That's how bad the pain was of my sin. The mental pain, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain, the physical pain actually drained him to the extent that he was in need of help. And I truly believe that Satan would have killed him right then and there if he could have. But he couldn't. He didn't. He wouldn't. Jesus needed that strength. This is the only time in Scripture where there appears to be Jesus receiving help. In his flesh. He fought the devil alone in the wilderness with simply the word of God. But in the face of your sin, it was so overwhelming that Jesus had an angel lift his arms. A crushing weight. Notice that there was not just grace, which there was. There were also groans. And being in agony, his sweat was as great drops of blood falling to the ground. Only Luke records this. Not surprising, Luke was a doctor. As he talks about hematidrosis, which is a condition whereby the capillaries in your skin begin to burst and it can happen from great emotional stress. These little tiny vessels rupture and mix with sweat produces on the surface of your skin oozing drops of blood 
It only happens when someone is so stressed that it causes a system failure in your circulatory system. Now, Jesus is God, which he is, and also flesh, which he is. This is about as bad as it gets as far as humans trying to take on something and battle with it. You see what was going on. I only know of a couple of times in human history this has actually been recorded. One of them was during the London Blitzkrieg. People in bomb shelters waiting to be blown to bits were so worried that this happened to them. As Hitler rained down bombs on London. Imagine Jesus sweating blood for you. The angel comes and prays for him. So I think on these things, Jesus, the last Adam, obeyed his father in the garden and agonized for me, for you. It's odd to me that the angel couldn't come and die for my sins. You might be one of those people that thinks, well, you know, would it, that would have been enough. No, an angel is a created being just like you. They've been created a long time ago. But we know that angels had the capacity to sin because a third of the angels fell with Satan. So even angels aren't perfectly sinless in that sense. I believe in the presence of God, they actually are, but the Bible is very clear, they still have the capacity. Jesus didn't even have the capacity in that sense. He was perfect. And so he took that capacity upon himself here in the garden and said, Father, nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus stretched out, stressed, strained, but praise God, he wasn't broken, amen? Jesus wasn't broken. He took the full measure, all of it. And church, sometimes I think we become so accustomed to celebrating things like Easter and Christmas that we forget the gravity of the situation. You see, up until this moment, all of us, like sheep, had gone astray. Each one had turned to its own way, and there was not a thing we could actually do about it to get free of our own sin. The Jewish people were as close as you could get, and they would only make it to the Day of Atonement once a year on Yom Kippur where they were given, in essence, a letter of forbearance by God and their sins put away for another season, only to be stored up year upon year upon year, waiting for the day that the price would actually be paid. But for you and I, without the garden, 
without the cross, without the tomb, without the resurrection, there is no hope for us in an eternal sense. But praise God, there is a garden. And praise God, there is a cross. And praise God, there is a tomb. And praise God, there is a resurrection. Amen? Amen. In order to tell us exactly how important this is, notice what happens in verse 45 as we see the disciples' guilt. Luke draws attention to another ingredient in this recipe of the garden window. As we look through this narrow space and see these very few things going on, and when he arose up from prayer, he'd come to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Why would Jesus say that in that moment? Because they were in danger. They were in trouble. Just as much as you and I need prayer today, so the disciples needed prayer in that moment. They were about to face the worst evening of their life. And they're sleeping. You know, there are times when we need to stay awake and pray. Furthermore, stay awake fast and pray. Deny the flesh. These guys were exhausted. There's no question. And so, like the Lord Jesus is not being harsh, I would certainly not be harsh. I would have done no better myself. I would have been asleep as well. But church... It's the body of Christ. We need to be awake and praying. Luke gives us this little tiny detail because Jesus is in effect saying, look, this battle is going to be won on your knees, guys. You need to pray this one through. This is going to be rough. You're going to see things you never thought you would see. And you're going to need things you never thought you would need. And they needed more faith. They needed more power. They needed more of the Lord, not less. Maybe they needed angelic help. But instead they let the weariness of the battle get them to fall asleep when they should have been praying. There are going to be times in your life, church, and I say this with deep love for you, there are going to be times in your life where the best thing you can do is stay up and agonize in prayer. Oh, you're going to want to sleep. You're going to want the, the respite from the battle. You're going to want to lay down, put your head down and say, I just can't take it anymore. But it is in that moment that you probably need the prayer more than ever. And sometimes I think we don't have what we need because we haven't asked for it. We fired off some little bullet prayer to heaven. It's like, Lord, help. Maybe the Lord's calling you to agonize over a prodigal child or a desperately needed job your marriage 
maybe some health issue, your parents, some broken relationship, our country, how about that one? Our world, your lost neighbor. Maybe God's inviting you to stay up with him occasionally and just agonize. I wonder if the church would be a little more in agony. Maybe we would also have more victory. Jesus had victory in that agony, church. And yet through the garden window, we also see betrayal. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude That word is a word that is cohort. It means a tent of a legion. That means there would have been 600 soldiers, six centurions, one for every hundred soldiers, coming with Judas, one of the twelve. And went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So here comes Judas. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you really going to do this? The time was up for Judas. It's now or never. In that moment, he still had an opportunity for grace. But the moment he turned that corner, he was lost. It was now or never. And it's good to notice the order of events here. This was no unorganized mob. This wasn't a group that they, you know, this wasn't like the 1950s Frankenstein movie where all the farmers grabbed their pitchforks and torches. This was a military detachment of trained Roman soldiers along with their leadership, with all of their weapons, swords, knives, spears, eagle banners, shields, along with Annas, Caiaphas, Judas, some elders of the temple, coming to arrest a homeless rabbi. There's almost a little irony in this. Judas, seriously? You really needed... I would have gone if anyone had just simply allowed me to. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? You talk about overkill. That kiss, we learned from John, was part of Judas receiving this band of men. It's like, let's, let's go. The church, I'm going to say something right now, and I don't mean to overstate it. But I think it is radically important that in everyone's life, 
there is a place of no return. And by that I simply mean there is a point in time the scriptures are very clear that God actually hardens our hearts himself when we have gotten to the place that we will no longer yield to the Spirit. When there's no hope. And once you pass it, it's done. It's over. You are turned over to your own flesh. You can see that in the life of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He said, look, Pharaoh, you're not going to change. You're also going to die in your sin. And I think this is really important because a lot of us play with sin. And a lot of us have people in our lives that we allow to go on sinning and we say nothing. Let's not cheapen Passion Week with weak lives of faith. There is a Rubicon. Julius Caesar in 49 BC at the time was the general of the region of Gaul, which would have included part of France, Austria, a little bit of Germany, the land that was inhabited by the Celts at the time, before they retreated back to where Hadrian would eventually build his wall in the north of England. But at that time, Julius Caesar was not Caesar. He was a general. And a law was written into Roman law that if one was to take a standing army and cross the Rubicon River, which by the way is really a creek, that that was treason. And to do so would bring the full might of the Roman army against you. Well, Caesar did cross the Rubicon and eventually was able to take Rome and did capture Rome But that started a civil war that lasted 11 years. And in the same way, there is a line that cannot be crossed in your life and in mine. If you do not have the grace of God and you continue in sin, there is a place that God only knows. And I say this so that we do not mess With the grace of God. It is a free gift, but it is not a cheap gift. Jesus is making that payment as we look at these four windows to Easter. We can see Peter's battle as we close this up for today through the garden window. Again, you just have to really so identify with Peter. And when those around him, verse 49, saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we happen to know Because Luke is being a little more careful here. The rest of the gospel authors don't spare Peter. It was Peter. And Jesus answered and said, permit this, even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. 
And then Jesus said to the chief priest, notice who he speaks to. He doesn't say a word to the Roman soldiers. They're, in essence, doing their job. That's what they're supposed to do in Rome. That's why it's so important that we understand that God has a place for civil government. Jesus does not address the Roman soldiers. He addresses the religious legalists that are behind this. The chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who had come. Have you come out against as a robber with clubs and swords? Seriously? Jesus was homeless. Apparently, only Peter has two swords. So maybe if all the disciples are there, they have two swords among them, and pretty clearly, they're not any good with the swords. Trying to kill the poor high priest's servant manages to take his ear off instead of his head. When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try and seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus hadn't attempted to hide himself, and he wasn't hiding in the garden. He was praying in the garden. Everything that Jesus had said, Jesus said publicly. He'd made no bones about who he was. Yet Peter, once again, is relying on the wrong weapons. They're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. Amen? Peter didn't need a sword. He needed what Jesus asked him to do. Prayer. Faith. Belief. He needed to be a better listener on top of all of that. Amen? Anybody else in here need to be a better listener to the Lord? Yeah, I do. It's amazing to me how many times God's actually spoken and I wasn't listening. Jesus has already told him, look, Peter, I'm going to die. Oh, no, you're not, Lord. Well, yes, I am, Peter. Jesus had come into Jerusalem for this very reason. Maybe this was Peter's way of making good. And so I think it's important to not be too harsh on Peter. I would have fared no better. Neither would you. You would have messed up as well. We would have all pulled out something, you know, in our day and time. I think we can all look back on our lives and see where we used the arm of flesh when the spirit is what was necessary. Probably the number one cause of conflict in every marriage. When someone comes in for marriage counseling, it's like, oh, that's flesh. That's flesh versus spirit. You caved into the flesh, that's the issue. The issue is not your husband's thing. It's not that sin. The issue is you have both turned to the weapons of the flesh. And so you return sin for sin, evil for evil. And Jesus is saying, look, we're not going to defeat this kind of evil, this kind of darkness, by adding more darkness to the equation. This is going to be one in the spirit. 
I also find it interesting that Peter doesn't actually strike any of the soldiers. This is kind of a little thing that you, you don't get at first. This is, the high, this is a janitor. This is the church, you know, who, who knows what his duties normally were. This is like one of the facility guys at the temple. The high priest's servant. Just along maybe to carry something for the high priest. Peter doesn't go after the soldiers. He goes after a servant. Woo! Way to go, Peter. Super brave. And so Jesus heals him. Finally, as we wrap this up, Jesus excuses himself. He touched his ear and he heals this man. He cleans up Peter's mess. Would you mark this passage? Jesus is in the business of cleaning up your mess too, and mine. I cannot even tell you how many ears Jesus has had to put back on because of something I said. I try not to make that my habit every day, of course. But for those of you who are married, you, you know sometimes um, you do not engage your brain before you speak. You do it after. And all of a sudden you've said something that you actually didn't intend to say, but nonetheless, because it was in your heart, you said it. And Jesus has to put that ear back on. Can I tell you that sometimes those scars remain a lifetime? I'm sure this guy, you know, I, we, we're not told exactly how Jesus did this. But can you imagine him walking around? Yeah, I was in the garden and this guy Peter lopped off my ear. That's why it's sideways. Don't make Jesus put ears back on for you. Walk in grace towards other people. Walk in love towards other people. Give them what you yourself need, what I need. This is the night of Jesus' death. He's going to go from here to six illegal trials, ultimately the cross and a tomb. But the Lord had approached the Passover on the very first day he had gone near the temple and turned over, they could have arrested him there. Would have been very easy. They wouldn't have needed a cohort. They could have just arrested him in the temple precinct. On the fourth day, the day before Passover, which is our Palm Sunday, he rode in publicly into Jerusalem. The next day, he curses a fig tree. He faces the hatred of the Sanhedrin at that point in time. They could have arrested him there. Next day, same story. Why did they wait until dark? Because they were doing the work of darkness. They thought that the dark could shield them. They were doing dark work in a dark time, and they thought that that would save them. In essence, Satan had been waiting for this time 
I've always tried to figure out what was Satan thinking? Well, I think at this moment he thought he won. I think for a very little bit of time, as Jesus is agonizing on the cross, Satan was wringing his hands with joy. But it would be very, very, very short-lived. And that's the story that we'll engage in the rest of our time here during these remaining three windows to Easter. The lights are going to go out in Jerusalem. It's going to be dark. But it's not going to stay dark. There's going to be a new day. And for us who know the Lord, that new day has come, amen? If you don't know him, today can be that new day. So as we spend some time this week in prayer, seeking the Lord, as we meet next Friday for a look through the window at the tomb, as we rise up Easter morning to see what Peter and John and Mary Magdalene saw. Let's be praying for how we can be not causing any further grief to the Lord, but aiding him in what he came to do, which is to seek and save the lost. Amen? Would you stand? I want to pray if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, We have a couple of ways that we would love to share the gospel with you. One of them is to simply go to the prayer room and say, what do I need to do to know Jesus? Very simple plan of salvation. But we have another way. That's you want to receive the Lord. All you got to do is pull out your cell phone and text Jesus to that number. Now, Jesus is not going to text you back. But we are, and we're going to check on you. We're probably going to come see you, too. We'd love to share the gospel with you so that you can know the Lord personally. He did all of this for you, for me. We are the blessed recipients of his grace. And because of that, we should be the most grace-filled people on the planet. Willing to forgive, filled with compassion and love. Let's make that our aim this week. Father, we thank you for this window into the garden where you and your son Jesus spoke one to another. Lord, you decided in eternity past that this was what would be done. And Jesus, you went all the way, the full measure, the full weight of my sin was heaped on you. And Father, we thank you for that. That's why Jesus came on that Palm Sunday. Was to exchange your life for mine. And we are grateful, I am grateful, Lord, for the price that was paid. Maybe there's someone here or watching online that doesn't know you 
Lord, that simple truth that if we will confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that you, Jesus, died on Calvary's cross and were raised and live eternally for us, we can know you and you will forgive our sin if we simply ask. So, Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for this week and what it means to us as the church. Use us, Lord, this week. Help us to invite somebody out. Be bold with our faith. You were bold in the garden. Let us be bold with our faith for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.